though the sections build on each other, uh, there's a, 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 a divine intention that the narrator, God, did when he gave this to Moses in this fashion and this order. And we'll see a very clear split between verses 15 and 16. Now, as we look at that, I want to remind us of where we've been on our journey. Then we're going to read the text together, uh, because that's, of course, the most important thing we can do together, is to hear directly from God's Word and not just from his messenger today. As we look at the text, we're going to ask God to help us understand why he is our God of wonder. And so as we look at the text this morning, let us remind ourselves uh, where we've been and what the context of this text is. So as we look at the text, we find that our journey here is tracking God's seed. Genesis 3.15 After the horrible fall of Adam and Eve, the one singular command God gave that was broken, God promises to crush the serpent's head, but bruise the heel of the one who would be the crushing agent, the seed that God would give Eve. This is a promise that God would make in the beginning to all man, because each and every one of us are made in God's image and likeness. We have incredible value, incredible purpose. Our God of wonder has made us for relationship with him. That relationship that was marred and broken by sin has been and will be restored by the creator himself, but that restoration would cost everything. That restoration would be a restoration through blood, through the sacrifice of an innocent one in the place of the guilty. We saw that in the garden when God sacrificed a lamb or an animal, presumably a lamb, the blood was shed, uh, and that symbolic act of taking and clothing Adam and Eve with the skin of of an innocent animal would be the beginning of bloodshed throughout human history. An innocent for the guilty. That seed was the promise that was foretold. And as we've walked through Genesis, we've gone through the technical details of the narrator. We've seen the symmetry and the chiasm of the outline that God provided through Moses as he wrote this masterful treatise to the people of Israel. As they came out of Egypt. Yes, this was written about prehistory, history before uh, the flood and history before Israel but it was written to Israel after they exited Egypt by Moses himself. So as they were hearing their story written down from God, from the hand of God to Moses directly, we have the same transcendent truths that God gave to Moses and the covenant people of God for us, the new covenant people of God today. And as we see today, the text will display the God of wonder, in a bold way that will connect us to the seed that was promised, but in a way perhaps that we have not yet expected. And so our journey tracking God's seed thus far has brought us us deep into the inner workings of the life of Abraham and Sarah. And note, I'm now calling them Abraham and Sarah. (laughs) If I say Abram and Sarah, forgive me. It's been confusing for the last couple of weeks, right? As we see the journey of Abraham and Sarah, we now know through the genealogies of Genesis 5, Genesis 11, the statement in Genesis 12 that Abraham is indeed the 20th from Adam. He is the heir that God has chosen. He will, he will be the one to whom God will give a seed, and that seed will be none other than the Messiah, the promised deliverer, because guess what? Sin destroys, but God delivers. So as we tracked the life of Abram and Sarai from Genesis 12 to Genesis 17, we noted a a wonderful journey of faith. Abram now Abraham and Sarai now Sarah have been named as such, once exalted father and princess, been renamed the father of many nations and a new name of princess. Their journey of faith to date has been an example for all of us. While Abraham's faith, or journey of faith, while Abraham's faith has both soared and plummeted, 
he never failed to trust in the God who always keeps his promises. Even his household servants participated in and experienced the blessing of Abraham's faith when he won the great victory from the kings of the east. Recall that? And Abraham gave away a tenth of, the, of his own personal property in tithing to uh, the God of, or, or in tithing to the one true God who was given through Melchizedek, the king priest of God Most High. His own community of faith that he had built, his servants trusted him, his servants obeyed him, his servants were blessed because they were in Abram's household. And as he got this victory, he received God's promise of the seed through his marriage to Sarai and experienced God's covenantal promise committed to God, to, to him by God himself. We saw that in chapter 15. As you recall, God came to him after this incredible victory and he promised to bless him and he entered into a covenant relationship, a covenant of blood. Animals' blood was shed. God passed through the bloody path while Abram slept and he committed to Abram, I will fulfill the promise of blessing on you of a posterity and a progeny because I am God and there is no other. That was the promise. We saw that in chapter 15. You see, Abram's community around him, his household was blessed because he had incredible faith. Hagar, even Hagar couldn't help but be exposed to and to get to know the God who sees her and hears her. We saw that incredible hiccup along the road and the human tragedy and suffering that Hagar experienced because Abram and Sarai weren't willing to actually trust God and act in faith, but rather Sarai uh, wanted to devise a human method of fulfilling God's promise, and that human method was not blessed, and it left collateral damage, the wake of hurt and sin. And friend, isn't it true that all of us, when we try to sidestep God's blessing, do things our own way, we often lead a wake of suffering behind us and human collateral damage. And that's what we saw. Yet, Hagar was able to get to know intimately and personally the God who saw her and the God who heard her. She named her son, He Hears. And for the rest of her life, she would remember the God who sees and the God who hears. Yes, Abraham, Abraham's faith uh, in the midst of the ups and downs for more than 30 years in the making from the time of leaving Ur with 23 years of wandering the promised land to boot, through Abraham's faith, we find the Lord visiting Abraham and not just for his sake, but here in the text, verses 1 to 15 and, and chapter 18, we are going to find God visiting Abraham, the father of our faith, Yet again, but this time, he's going after another individual in the household. So we learned last time that the imputed righteousness that, when, that we receive when we place our faith in God's way of deliverance and not our own human ingenuity will cost us obedience to God. That's what chapter 17 was about. God gives us external righteousness that he says, you don't deserve it, but I'm giving it to you because I love you and I want a relationship with you. But when we receive the righteousness of God, our natural response must be, or our supernatural response, as it were, must be obedience and devotion. Abraham's obedience is ratified in chapter 17 and deepened throughout his story as we move into chapter 18. The deepening relationship with Abraham that God has directed culminated in God's lesson for Abraham that God's imputed righteousness must be expressed in devotion to him through obedience. Thus, we learned last week that God blesses faith expressed in obedience. Chapter 17 highlighted that text and this truth through four revealed characteristics. We learned them. Genuine faith is rooted in God's character and promise in verses 1 and 2. That genuine faith responds in humility and obedience, verse 3, 17, 23, and 27. That genuine faith receives a new identity, verse 5 and 15, and genuine faith is offered collectively. Now that's important. So turn with me to the text again and look at the end of chapter 17. Remember, what has God done? God has appeared to Abraham again. He's given him a new identity, a new name. He's promised a 
faith or a covenant blessing for the whole community that Abraham will have and all of his descendants. And what does Abraham do in righteous response? He chooses to obey God. Does he waver? Does he vacillate? Does he wait? And the answer is no. Verse 26, that very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Now remember last time we were talking about uh, this this outward sign of an inward relationship, this covenant of a group of people that would then be identified with a new name and a new direction and a new purpose as Yahweh's representatives to mankind and the inheritors of the seed and the promise. And so, thus far, Abraham has directed faith's obedience for his family. You see that? Every time God has come to Abraham, he has responded in worship. Every time from the call out of Ur to the the disputes between Lot and Abram and, and his deference to his nephew, to the conquering of the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah and the kings where Abram would respond by faith and pursuit of God's rescue Lot, God's chosen one, to the present circumstance where Abraham obeys God at 99 years old and does something that is difficult with his entire household. What we're going to see then is that it's not enough. Let me back up. However, even though Abram's directed faith and obedience has been directed for God to God and for his family, chapter 17 ends with that reality as we just read. However, God is seeking another willing participant to enter this covenant relationship with him. And her journey has not yet come to fruition. So today we will see that it's not enough to be in a community that bears the signs of a true covenant relationship with God. God expects every individual to willfully enter a relationship with him. The text actually reveals this in two contrasting ways. The first contrasting truth is that genuine faith in God promotes corporate participation in his worship. Genuine faith in God promotes corporate participation in his worship, verses 1 to 8. The final contrasting truth we will see today is that genuine faith in God always calls individuals to trust in him, verses 9 to 15. So we will see today this truth together we must all individually enter a relationship with the God who sees and hears us. We must all individually enter into a relationship personally with God Almighty El Shaddai. That's the focus of this text today. God, in his mercy and justice, is about to pursue his covenant relationship with his chief servant and representative, Abraham, who is is to be the father of many nations, who is thus far proven that he can carry along a covenant community because his faith in God is unshakable, but he has an unwilling partner. Oh, she's been willing along the way to do what he's asked, but she has yet to enter a personal covenant with God. That's what the text highlights. That's what we're going to discuss today. So what we find here in the theme of these 15 verses is this, faith's individual responsibility. I want us to see a a sweet contrast, though. Who was it that came to Adam and Eve in the garden after the fall? God. Remember, God calls Adam and Eve. Now, they respond negatively. They flee from him. They hide from him. Eventually, they come to him, and you know the rest of the story. Who is it that comes to Noah at the end of a decimated time of destruction and despair? But Noah found grace in the eyes of God, the Lord. Who is it that comes to Abram, a moon worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees, the crescent of populated earth at this point. God most high. 
God the Lord comes and says, Abram, separate yourselves and, and your household from this wicked generation and leave Ur of the Chaldees. Who is it that's pursuing God's people all along the way? God. And in the context, though there, there's a, a highlight and a discussion about an individual here, I don't want us to lose sight of the reality, friend. You and I are here today, and at the sound of my voice, if you're hearing me today, whether in presence or online, God is pursuing you. God loves you, and he wants to have a covenant relationship with you. He made you special in his image and his likeness, and this story today showcases that God is not willing to leave any behind. But faith has individual responsibility. That is the text that we see. So we're going to ask the question. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, Pastor, how does the text reveal God's relational expectation with individual responsibility. And if you ask that question, that was very intuitive of you. I'm glad you did that. How does the text reveal God's relational expectation with individual responsibility? And the answer is simply this. We will see two contrasts today in intimate realities. First, we will see faith's corporate worship of God as revealed in Abram's, Abraham's response in verses 1 to 8. But then we're going to see, in contrast, faith's call to individual trust in God. So as we look at faith's corporate worship of God in verses 1 to 8, let's, uh, let's go ahead and read the text. Well, before we do that, let me just say this. Let me highlight this. The text at hand is actually the beginning of a compare-contrast section. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't surprise you because God often uses story structure to tell us what the story is about. So far, from Genesis to the present, God has, has used a story structure that is layered. He's given us little pieces and then added to the pieces. I will give you a seed that will crush the serpent's head. She thinks it's Cain. Cain dies. Uh, excuse me, Abel. He, Cain kills his brother Abel. Cain is rejected. She has another seed. It must be Seth. Guess what? It is Seth. Right? And we go all the way down, and then God layers on the next level. The whole earth is filled with violence, and so God, it relents him uh, that he made man, and he causes an incredible entire earth-wide cataclysm that destroys and wipes out mankind, their sin and degradation from the face of the planet. But Noah and his family find grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God rescues eight souls on an ark with a single door, a single way, a single avenue to enter his presence. Did he have a single avenue before? Yes. Yes, he provided a covering for Adam and Eve. Now he's providing a way to save all of mankind through him, through his means. As we fast forward, we saw the story, God building layer upon layer, but here the story is a contrast. That's why I'm only preaching through the first 15 verses and I only have two points today. Because verse 16 and following is a story of tragedy and justice. A story about God's destruction on the cities and the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Where we're going to find Lot, who, was, who is Abram's beloved nephew, whom Abram has at one time risked everything for to save and to rescue. But we're going to find the seed that is promised of God contrasted with the seed that is produced out of Lot. I don't want to get too far ahead this morning, but we find in verses eight, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 to 15, um, some parallel here with a central point. Uh, there's a visitor's announcement of Isaac's birth here. That's what really, what's happening in verses 1 to 15 is, an, uh, is the overarching truth that the visitors that show up to Abraham and his doorstep, as it were, are announcing Isaac's birth. And what does Isaac mean? He laughs, or laughter. We, we know why there's a play on that, because Abraham laughed when he heard from God that he was going to bear a child at 100, or be the father of a child at 100. So we're going to find in the text, laughter occurs again. So laughter, the announcement of laughter, the birth of Isaac. Remember the seed that's promised. But what happens in verses 16 to chapter 19, verse 29? 
we're going to find that what happens there is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and deliverance of Lot. And there's a huge contrast. Abraham's faith, Sarah's faith, that I'm getting to the end of the story of chapter 15, of, of uh, verse 15 here, but Sarah and Abraham's faith deliver all of their ancestors, both present and future. And they're set up for God's wonderful blessing, and the seed is going to continue through them. But Lot isn't able even to deliver himself. He has to get rescued by these two messengers that show up, and he gets rescued with just two of his daughters, and we're going to find out that, that everything Lot held dear gets destroyed and wiped out, including his own wife. In verses, chapter 19, verses 30 to 38, we have this incredibly awful account of the birth of Lot's children through his own daughters. See, there was an unholy seed and an unrighteous seed, and there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end of that way brings death. Friends, sin destroys, but God delivers. You say, Pastor, why are you bringing this up? Because this is a small beginning of a compare-contrast section. Last week, we learned that God blesses faith that obeys, right? So when we showcase genuine faith that obeys, God's blessing follows. Here, we're going to find that the emphasis of the text is the beginning of this compare-contrast section. Sin destroys, but God delivers. We're going to find that before destruction happens, God, in his mercy and justice, pursues an individual who's very important to him. And that is why we have the text reminding us that we must all individually enter a relationship with God. It's not an, enough to just be part of the corporate worship of God. We must all enter an individual relationship. So we will soon discover that Abraham and Sarah's personal faith is sharply contrasted between Lot's personal failure with a future that is radically different for his descendants. Now, with that in mind, the building of this contrast Let's look at the text and read verses 1 to 15, okay? As we read, I want you to make note of all of the individual decisions that Abraham makes to worship the Lord, as well as his compelling the community that he's in charge of to do so also. So I want you to make note of that. Note who in the community is involved and what their involvement is, but Abraham is definitely leaving, leading the charge here, okay? Let's take a look. We already read the end of chapter 17. It ends with the same day uh, they were all circumcised. Then, verse 18, 1, then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth tree of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the ground. And he said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please, let a little water be brought. Wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by, and as much as you have come to your servant. They said, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Verse 9, And they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the, the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I've grown old, Shall I have pleasure, my Lord also being old? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? 
Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Now, the story ends radically and abruptly there. And I think that the abrupt end is the point, is the purpose of this compare-contrast. So here in verses 1 to 8, we're going to see faith's corporate worship of God compared and contrasted with God's individual uh, requirement of faith. So now that we've read the chapter, let's talk about some exegetical commentary. First of all, we see that Abraham recognizes one of these three visitors as the Lord. Do you note that? Uh, The text actually has this sort of narrative style that Abraham is sitting in his tent. It's it's the heat of the day, so we're talking, you know, noonish. Maybe it's two o'clock, right? It's the hottest part of the day. He's sitting under a tree for shade. His his tent is uh, strategically placed, so it is in the shade as well. And all of a sudden, he sees three visitors. Now, the way the text states it, it, it's as if they appeared out of nowhere. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. When he approaches the three visitors, we find him immediately recognizing one of them as distinct from the other two. He calls him Lord. Now, the divine narrator, of course, tells us in verse 1, then the Lord Yahweh appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre. Okay? So the narrator has already told us Yahweh appears to him. So we're looking at this group of three and we're wondering, okay, which one is Yahweh? And we find one of them is. So he calls him Adonai, or Lord, Master. Since this is a pre-incarnate theophany of the Lord Jesus, accompanied by two angelic companions, Abraham desires to have intimate fellowship with them. Notice what he does. He says, sit, stay a while. Lord, uh, we've had worship. You remember, do you recount after he left Ur of the Chaldees? What did he begin to do in that day? He began to set up altars. He began to sacrifice to the Lord. He began to offer burnt offerings in a sweet savor. He began to worship the Lord. And now after 30 years of regular and consistent habitual worship, his heart wells up within him and he recognizes the very presence of the God whom he's worshiped. He falls down before him. The word to bow down there is used all throughout the Old Testament as an act of worship when it's used in reference to God. So Abraham literally falls in worship before the one he recognizes as his Lord and his God. And guess what? He doesn't want him to leave. Excuse me if I get emotional. But as a pastor, I have the wonderful privilege of being at the bedside of many of God's chief servants before they pass. And I can tell you, it is so sweet to hear their loving desire to be embraced by their Lord and Savior. Some of the things that they say are so precious. And I cannot tell you what comes out of the heart of a worshiper who has spent their life bowing down before Jesus. And one day we will all see him, Paul says, as as if we're beholding ourselves. We will see him face to face in all his glory And we await that glorious day where we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So friends, it is not a surprise to us that Abraham wishes that the Lord and his companions would stay just a little longer. You've ever had that sweet time in your devotion where you've been reading the word and you're praying and you just sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart and you know God is there and the promises of his presence, I will never leave you or forsake you, is just so real and so palpable so that you could just feel he's there with you. Well, Abraham Abraham didn't have to guess. He was there with him. And so I think it's hilarious that Abraham, out of respect, asks uh, certain questions. Um, Could you wait a little bit? Would you let me get just a little water? Wash your feet off. Um, uh, If you don't mind, um, could I just get you a, a little morsel of bread? Now, immediately you're thinking he's, you know, 
you know, unleavened cakes or, you know, pita bread or some kind of like snack, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe some pita bread, right? Just take the edge off. It's hot of the day. That makes total sense. But what does Abraham do? Oh, God doesn't need my crumbs. God needs the best I've got to offer. He sprints into his tent and he says, Sarah, Sarah, uh, make six gallons of flour. That's essentially what this measurement equals out. I want you to make enough bread that you can make out of six gallons of flour. Now that is a feast and a half. I don't know if any of you ladies are bread makers, but you get that much flour, you're talking about making food for an army practically. So she spends, she goes to task and she spends her time making a whole bunch of bread. Then Mr. 100-year-old sprints off to the herd. Who knows how far that is away, right? He sprints off to the herd. He founds one of, finds one of his herd directors and he says, hey, I want you to get that one. That young fatted calf, boy, I've been thinking about him for a while, or I should say her for a while. That's probably a her. Uh, I've been thinking about her for a while. I'd like to uh, slaughter her. I'd like for you to prepare her um, in all of her fat and juiciness. Make sure she is medium rare for our guests. Um, I know some of you are super grossed out because you're only vegetarians. I apologize, but that's what the text says, okay? Literally, he's saying, I want you to get the, the best cow that I have in my herd right now. And I want you to prepare this because guess what? God Almighty is here and he's going to stay for a meal. So notice the exegesis in this text. Abraham's faith is contagious. To date, what have we known about Sarah, previously known as Sarai? She's heard the promise. She's seen her husband claim the promise. She's tried to engineer another method to get the promise. She's been austere and strict and rigid and uh, un, uh, uncalculably cruel to her own handmaiden, Hagar. And she's disowned the child that she said she would claim as her own, Ishmael, and only Abram has been rearing him. She's not really been along for the ride in the same way her husband has. She's been supportive, but she's not really in the same spot. But what does she do? Abram's faith is contagious. She does what he asks. She pre prepares a feast. If indeed God is here, we're going to roll out the red carpet. He's going to get the best flour and the best bread that I can make, and she does that. By the way, I find it interesting we find this happen all throughout the Old Testament multiple times. There's several more theophanies. That's a fancy word for a pre-incarnate, before Jesus took on flesh, before he was called Yeshua, before he was born of, of Mary, um, through the Holy Spirit's inception. Before that happened, Jesus shows up in the Old Testament a couple of times in human form. We call it a pre-incarnate theophany, an appearing of the pre-incarnate Jesus. Every time it happens throughout the Old Testament, except this time, God's people offer to feed him a meal, and you know what he does? Every time, without exception, without fail, he accepts their offering by burning it up with fire. He doesn't eat with them. Every single time. This is the one and only time in the Old Testament that God himself has a physical meal with his man of faith and his family. He has a covenant communal meal with the family of faith. Now, will that happen again? Oh, you bet your bottom dollar it will. It happens in the New Testament with a guy named Jesus, and the very last time he does it was with his 12 in an upper room, and he breaks bread, and he says, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. You see, the covenant God of the Old Testament has made a covenant of faith with Abraham who will send the seed of his Messiah to conquer death forever. And in the New Testament, there's a new covenant that the covenant God of Israel is now making with his church. And that new covenant is for all of us. And we'll find that one day Jesus 
will eat a meal with us as well. What a beautiful picture. The only time in the entire Old Testament that the Lord himself sits down and savors a meal with his chief servant. This is, a, this is an important part of context. By the way, um, it's interesting that Mamre has been a place in the past of strife and division between Lot and Abraham, but now it's a place of fellowship. One commentator put it this way in reference to Mamre, recalls earlier events in the lives of Abraham and Lot. Remember their parting in chapter 13, verse 18, and the elders' rescue of Lot from the eastern kings in chapter 14? Abram looked up and he saw, literally lifted up his eyes and he saw, this often signals an event of imminent importance. Again, from Mamre, the patriarch will show the same paternal concern for his nephew. Abraham, in the heat of the day, verse 2, took refuge from the sun at the door of his tent. The sudden appearance of travelers standing before him or nearby suggests immediately that these guests were extraordinary. So Mamre was a place of, of prominence in Abram's life. And now Abraham, again at Mamre, not a place of conflict, but now a place of fellowship is breaking bread with the Almighty. Now, the text showcases in verses 1 to 8 a very clear reality. Abraham was a man who compelled corporate worship of God. Abraham was a man who knew God intimately and whom God, the Almighty, knew himself as well. Abraham prepared a feast of worship before God, and everybody in Abraham's community of faith came together and partied with the Almighty that day. You see, faith's corporate worship of God is clear in this context. You and I, when we are faithful to God, when we live lives connected in faith and obedience to God, when we showcase our love for God and our passion for God, we will generate a desire in others to get to know the God that we are showcasing as well. And corporate worship is essential when we see God in a, an essential response to God. Some people say, well, I can worship God in spirit and truth, so I can go out in the Arizona wilderness by myself and worship God? Of course you can. Of course you can worship God individually and privately. And in fact, I would say God expects you to worship individually and privately. But God has promised that worship should be communal. Hebrews tells us that we're not to forsake the fellowship of ourselves one to another as such is the manner of some. But rather we are to gather together provoking one another to love and good works, especially as we see the day that is the day of the Lord approaching. See, friends, our faith individually should transcend into a faith of corporate worship. What, is, what does it say in the back wall? What did Jesus command his disciples? Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. And I skipped a phrase, sorry. Uh, and teach them whatsoever I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always. You see, friends, our faith, it's not enough to have an individual faith. We must have a corporate faith that compels others to worship. We must be gathering together regularly for the continual observance of worship. By the way, not to make too fine of a point on it, when we gather once a month at Crossroad, usually the first Sunday of the month, to celebrate the Lord's table, we are actually declaring communal worship under a new covenant promise through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus together. We are identifying that our only means of grace, our only means of salvation, the only mercy that we have from the just wrath of God comes in the person and the work of Jesus who broke his body and shed his blood. And when we trust in him alone, we have imputed righteousness and eternal life. And we declare that to everybody corporately when we celebrate the Lord's table. Do you see that? So here in the text, we find faith's corporate worship of God. And it reminds us, though, that we must all individually enter a relationship with God. Some of you are like Abraham's. Some of you just have such a compelling zeal and a faith and a joy that exudes from every pore of your body and every fiber of your being, and you're just fun to be around, and, and people, people just get excited about God every time you show up in the room. You light it up, right? 
and some of you say, oh, I could never be like that person. I could never, I could never. But God wants you to corporately worship him like Abraham. And you use your gifts, your time, your talent, and your treasure to glorify God. Don't compare yourselves with others. Compare yourself with Jesus. And, and own who you are, the gifts that God has given you. Now, we want to take a look at the second and contrasting element, which is, I think, the key to this whole passage, not who passage. That's a misspelling, sorry. The key to this whole passage. And that is, secondly, faith's call to individual trust in God. Verses 9 to 15. Faith's call to individual trust in God. Now, the story turns our attention to Sarah, who has, to date, has been a doubter. Would you, would you agree with that? To date, Sarah has been a doubter. Oh, she's gone along with her husband. Oh, she has submissively, obediently done what he said. She's tolerated Hagar back in the household for 13 years. Ishmael was brought up. She let her husband raise him. She let her husband treat him how to handle the flock and handle a bow and arrow and how to survive in the wild. But she didn't claim Ishmael as her own, even though she said she would, and it was her idea to begin with. Oh, Abram's no saint there either. We already know that. That's not the point. The point is here, Sarah has been a doubter. She's ridden on the coattails of her husband's faith. She's been blessed within the community of her husband's faith that the Holy Spirit and God has developed right there through the promise of God. And she's been along for the ride. She's enjoyed all the blessings and the benefits of God's protection and the immense wealth that God had given Abraham to this point. She's seen God do amazing things like deliver her from the Pharaoh of Egypt and provide uh, miraculously for them into the point where they've increased in value and number. But she's been a doubter. She's been part of this corporate community, but she's not yet part individually. One commentator rightly said this regarding Sarah's doubt, whereas Hagar had learned that God sees her, Sarah now learned that God sees inside her. And this, my friends, is what turns her heart. Sarah was doused with the reality that God is omniscient and all-knowing. And so, let's take a look again at the text. When they said to him, notice, notice the turn of tide. They're eating butter, milk, the fatted calf, you know, a massive amount of bread that Sarah has handmade herself. They're enjoying this meal together. And then they say to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, we have to understand Eastern culture. Sarah would, would need to have been invited into this patriarchal moment. Okay, there were no other women present, presumably. This was, a, this was a covenantal meeting between God and Abraham. But she's right next door, literally. There is, a, there is a curtain, a tent flap between her and the Almighty. Um, and any lady worth her salt should be able to hear any conversation, you know, on the other side of a door, right? I mean, come on, you ladies, I don't mean that in a negative way. You ladies are gifted communicators, and gifted communicators are gifted listeners too. And Sarah's listening, and she's not actually reprimanded for hearing this at all. In fact, God knows she's listening. God wants her to listen, or else the conversation wouldn't turn this direction. Does God have to talk to Sarah at all? Well, this is the reason why he came. We're going to find out in verses 16 and following that he actually had a purpose of destruction and justice that is to come, but he had a merciful mission to go, go to first. You see, Sarah was an individual in a corporate community of God's blessing that hadn't come personally to God yet. And God cared enough about her that he was going to pursue her right where she was, and he was not going to let her get away with doubt. So, look at the text. They say, where's Sarah? She, he says, she, she's here in the tent. He says, I'll, I'll return to you according to the time. What's he doing? He literally repeats word for word the promise he made in chapter 17. I'm going to return to you a year from now. So, we know this, this event occurred shortly after chapter 17 because, obviously, you remember I made the big gestational 
period word last week. You're like, what? What is gestation? Pregnancy, nine months. Takes nine months, right? Takes nine months to have a baby. So very shortly before this, he said a year from now, that's more than nine months, right? Three more than nine months, in fact. So um, this occurs shortly after the events of chapter 17, but shortly before a time of conception, all right? So he says, this promise, and what's the text say in parentheses? Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. What's the response to that promise? Abraham and Sarah, well, this is the narrator telling us, unless we didn't know yet, the story. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. That's a really nice and kind way of saying she was postmenopausal. She's 90 years old, okay? She's postmenopausal. It is physically impossible. Her womb is as good as dead, okay? From a human standpoint, there is zero chance she's getting pregnant, okay? She knows this. She's no slacker. She gets the point, all right? So therefore, because of the facts she knows, what does she know? God made this promise to Abraham, but he's never visited me. I, I tried to make it work, but God didn't bless that. And now I'm stuck with Hagar and, and uh, he hears Ishmael. And my, my, my husband is still begging God that Ishmael would be the seed of promise, even though he said that it would come from me. But here I am. I'm postmenopausal now. Maybe if he had done it a couple years ago, Maybe if this had happened, you know, earlier in our life, but no, no blessing from God, no child. I'm as good as dead. And so she laughs. This is a laugh, a laugh of bitter satire and irony. Sarah is a woman who has been a part of God's community blessing, but she's never really trusted God. And in bitterness now, she's angry at God. She laughs in bitter irony. And then it says, after I've grown old, he, she says, shall, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Just, just so you know, just to make this clear, this is not talking about um, the intimate relationship of marriage. This is talking about the pleasure of being a mother, okay? Uh, although there, it could have that double meaning, the point really is this. Will I, could I really have the pleasure of, of, of suckling an infant? of holding my own baby? I don't know. I, I've been waiting. I'm 90. I've been barren all these years. All of my relatives, my cousins, my uncles, my aunts, my nephews, my nieces, everybody for generation after generation after generation, I've watched them raise their beautiful children. Their children get married and have kids, and their kids get married and have kids, and their kids get married and have kids, but God hasn't blessed me with a child. How is this possible? How could I have this joy and this blessing? That's what she's talking about. And here's what God says. She laughs, and the Lord says to Abraham. Now, is he speaking just to Abraham? <laughs> the story makes it really clear. There's a really thin piece of canvas or animal skin hanging down here in a flap of a door. And uh, Sarah's on the other side. So he says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she laugh, saying, surely, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? And here is the key to this passage and the title of this message. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Still, Sarah denies it, saying, I did not laugh. Why did she do that? At this point, she's afraid. She now knows that the God who sees that Hagar met and the God who hears that Ishmael has, is named after is also the God who sees her on the inside, knows her innermost thoughts. There's no escape. God has cornered her, as, as it were, and she is in that place of ultimate and final decision. Will I have faith personally. And she makes an excuse again. I didn't laugh. And the end of the story, who gets the last word? God. 
No, but you did. Friends, God always gets the last word. We might think that we can connive, manipulate, twist, or even logically deduce in the greatest lawyer-esque fashion and argue with God, but God gets the last word. Scripture reminds us it is appointed unto man once to die, but after that judgment. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. The Bible describes it a great white throne gathering of all the unsaved dead, resurrected from the sea and hell, that will stand before the throne of God, and heaven and earth will flee away, and there will be nowhere to hide. And they'll stand before God, and he will open the books. And he'll say, this is what you did on this date, and this time, and this is what you said, and this is the person whose life you destroyed. And they will be judged. Because God is a just and mighty and sovereign God who sees and hears and sees the inside. And Sarah's faced with a choice. And God has the last word. Now, if time permitted, I'd preach all the way through the end of chapter 22 today. <laughs> We'd be here actually for three more days, knowing me. That's not happening, okay? But I want to wrap this up with this reality. I want you to turn to, for a moment, how do I know that Sarah responded individually here? Turn to Hebrews 11, will you? Just briefly. There's just two verses I want you to look at. I don't have them on the screen, so you have to actually turn, them, turn to them in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to look at verses 11 and 12. Okay? I'm going to wait till you get there. Hebrews 11, 11 and 12. Okay, you're there? All right. Here's what it says. By faith, Sarah herself. Now, this is, this is my cup of tea, my avenue. Hebrew, I have struggled with. Yes, I studied Hebrew. Um, I, supposedly, I can translate Hebrew. Um, but I did minor in Koine Greek. And this is a middle voice. This is a middle voice, and it's purposeful. Sarah herself, by faith. Not just, you know, by faith this happened to her. No, Sarah herself, by faith, receives strength to conceive seed. Now, the wording of this is masterful. Sarah, by faith, herself. And the, the implication is, Sarah in herself, chose to believe God by faith. And then what happened? She received a seed. She chose by faith herself, individually, and she received the strength to conceive. God granted her conception. By faith, Sarah herself, not Abraham's faith. This was her faith. The God who heard her and saw her and saw her to the very depths of her soul. She, he heard her bitter cry. He heard her want and her craving and her desire to be a mother, to give Abraham what, she, what he so desperately wanted, to be that fulfilled person that she thought she needed to be and indeed wanted to be. And God heard her, and so she believed God. And look what God does. He grants her request. And it goes on to say, and she bore a child when she was past the age. There's that New Testament concept of she was postmenopausal, like dead organ not happening, but here you go. God did it because she judged him faithful who'd promised. Why? Why did she get the blessing? Because she knew God was faithful. God said it. God will do it. I believe it. And that's what happened. But then what does verse 12 turn to? Therefore, based on this information, based on Sarah's individual choice of faith to receive strength and to conceive in her womb when she was postmenopausal, when it was impossible for, for her to do anything about it, therefore from one man and him as good as dead. He was 100, by the way. <laughs> him as good as dead. To one man were born 
from one man were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Oh my goodness. It's not enough. It wasn't enough for Sarah to ride the coattails of her husband. God wanted her to individually choose him. Now I have a few uh, concluding thoughts as we remember this theme. We must all individually enter a relationship with God. We must all enter into a relationship with God. I've got a few. Let's see how, how bad this one is. Oh, wow. That's almost illegible from your perspective. I'm going to leave it up there, and Pastor Stephen can post it so you don't have to scribble notes down vigorously, okay? Let me just tell you what my conclusion is, okay? Today, we have seen that God's blessing upon the Abrahamic community only came after Sarah was willing to trust God herself. You mean 30 years of wilderness wandering could have been squelched? Well, God brings us all on a journey, doesn't he? He knows exactly when we're ready. He knows exactly when the divine call will spark that regenerative life. He knows exactly what we need to follow him. Sarai tried human ingenuity until she became Sarah and she believed God. And so what we find is, and by the way, what did I tell you early on in the text? God pursued her. God in his mercy and love and his justice went after her. He was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wanted Sarah to come to faith. He wanted Sarah to be blessed and to be a part of the covenant that she'd already received blessing from. He wanted Sarah to be his personal child and have a personal relationship with him. Maybe God has placed you into his community here at Crossroad or some other community of faith, but you've just been a silent observer of corporate worship. You've seen God's rich and abundant blessing to you and to his community, but you haven't actually taken the step of faith to trust him yourself. May I today remind you that God's promise of eternal life and hope is for you as well, but it doesn't come just because you're an attendee or a member of a faith community. You must join with Jesus personally in relationship with him. Listen to what Jesus said to uh, one of the churches in Revelation 3.20. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Perhaps there's someone in here today, I, I don't know your heart, God does, but Jesus is knocking on your heart door. You can re re resonate with Sarah. You've been in that community of faith for a long time, but it's time to make the decision to trust him personally. Listen to what he says furthermore in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, under the inspiration of the Spirit, and the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Remember what we read in our corporate scripture reading in Isaiah 55, verse 1? Ho, everyone who thirsts, let him come and find drink without price. God is waiting and ready right now with open arms. He wants to receive every one of his children, and he will not lose one of them. And it's not enough to be a part of a corporate group of faith. It's not enough to ride the coattails of a husband, a brother, an uncle, a sister, a dad, a mom, a pastor, a pastor's wife, a friend, a cousin, a neighbor. No, we must trust Jesus individually. We must trust in God Almighty, in the great I Am, Yahweh, Yeshua, Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen to what Romans 10, 9 through 13 says. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. Does that sound covenant and community to you? Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless your descendants as, as uh, abundant as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. Will you obey me? Will you trust me?
And Abraham believed God and it was credited, accounted to him, imputed to him for righteousness so that the just shall live by faith. Romans 10, 10 says this, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. There's no distinction between ethnicities. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, friend, I, I went on a religious journey with my family growing up. We, we were faithful Catholics. I was baptized in the Catholic Church as an, as an infant a, a little over a year ago before my mom died. She insisted, absolutely insisted, and I thought it was weird at the time that I'd go up to the attic and dig out a bunch of boxes and look at a bunch of pictures. And so we spent three hours dumping out pictures, and I actually got to see a picture of my christening with my godfather, my Uncle Richard. His daughter just had a baby. And, and, I, and I look at that religious activity, but religious activity wasn't enough to get me in a relationship with God. And God moved my family from, you know, Catholicism to Church of Christ to Pentecostal holiness to Bible church. But ultimately, he brought them to faith in him. It's not about religion. You don't need to be a member of a Baptist church to get to heaven. It has nothing to do with a Baptist denomination. It has to do with the Savior, who is the Son of God, the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the call is corporate, but it must be individually received. And the promise is there for you. If you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, that he died according to the scriptures, was buried and rose from the dead according to the scriptures for you, then you can have eternal life. You can be in a personal relationship with God. And if you reject Jesus, friend, please hear me. Hebrews chapter six, verses four to eight. Don't miss this. This is equally as important as the gospel call. For it is impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. It is impossible to renew them again under, under repentance. Why? Because they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and they put him to an open shame. Verse 7 illustrates this. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Now that is not saying that you can lose your salvation. We already know the scripture clearly teaches that God is able to present you faultless. That the promise, if you call on him in mouth confession and heart belief, you shall be saved. It is a done deal. Jesus said, I and my father are one. You're in my father's hand. You're in my hand. No man can pluck you out of my father's hand. Amen. That's you too. You cannot pluck yourself out. You are not stronger than God. And neither am I. However, I believe this circumstance because the author of Hebrews is talking about the wilderness wandering Israelites who were part of the covenant faith, who exited Egypt in powerful display of God's might and majesty, who were being led by a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day, who were given the Ten Commandments, who were uh, given manna from heaven to feed them, whose shoes never wore out and clothes never got tattered. For 40 stinking years they complained in the wilderness and God took them all, an entire generation, because they actually did not know the God who was pursuing them. This text does not teach you can lose your salvation. What it teaches is it's not enough to be in a covenant community of faith. That cannot save you. My faith cannot deliver you from the destruction that I deserve and that we all deserve because I am not God. Only God 
can deliver you. And you must individually choose. That brings me to the final truth. I've already said it multiple times. We must all individually enter a relationship with God. Friend, do you have one? Are you in one? Have you received Christ? Hey, by the way, maybe this community of faith needs you as part of it. Maybe you've been coming for a while. We'd love for you to join. We'd love for you to link arms with us for the sake and the advance of the gospel. We need your gifting to get plugged in, to serve, to help rescue and triage sinners just like us, of whom I am chief, right? Oh, friend, maybe God's calling you to church membership today. You, you know you're a follower of Jesus. He is your one and only hope and trust, but now you want to follow Jesus in a community of faith that you need to be connected to. Maybe that's an application for you today. Either way, may God help us to remember we must all individually enter a relationship with God. Father.